appreciate the, the word you share in prayer. We've been talking about the Apostle Paul for a bit now. And we're kind of uh, having to get to a place where we face the last of Paul's ministry. If you're kind of tracking with what's happening in Paul's life, as you're reading through the text, you come across these places where warnings are given to Paul. He's finished his last um, sort of itinerant, itinerant, itinerant missionary journey. He's gone from church to church to church. He's gone back to churches that he's planted previously. He's planted some new churches. And he's moving about in the, uh, in the Roman Empire, really, in the, the Eastern Roman Empire. Spends a lot of time on the Grecian Peninsula up into what would be modern-day Turkey. Some of the islands out in, uh, in the, uh, the Mediterranean and even as far as what we would think of as the area around Lebanon. And as he's working through all of these regions, he's finally wrapping up this last missionary journey and he's determined that he will head for Jerusalem. He makes that statement, I'm going to Jerusalem. And um, I just wanted to share with you just a couple of the incidents that are there. He goes to the Ephesian church, gathers the elders of the Ephesian church, and he begins to tell them about his exit. He tells them that they need to take the church, that he's leaving the church in their hands. And this was his process. He would um, raise up local leaders in a church. He would come in. He'd spend a few weeks to a couple of years in a space. And he would teach and he would preach. And he would, he would teach leaders and elders. And he would prepare them to take over the leadership of the church. And the Bible says he tells the group at Ephesus that he would be leaving them and that he would see them no more. It's in chapter 20, verse 36 of the book of Acts. I'm going to read from 36 to the end of the chapter. When he had said these things, he told them to remember their work and his words and to receive the Holy Spirit's guidance. When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And then they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him. I like that image. I like that, uh, that graphic display of what it means to be hugged. They fell on his neck. They fell on his neck and they kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke, that they would see his face no more. Then they accompanied him to the ship and he left for Jerusalem. He is telling the people, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm not coming back. The Holy Spirit has spoken to Paul. Paul knows the next step of ministry for him. He knows the next destination that his call, his purpose is leading him. He knows he has to go to Jerusalem. We find him then moving on. He arrives at Caesarea Marineris. And another person comes to him. A prophet, the Bible says. And the man takes Paul's belt and he binds his hands with Paul's belt. And he says that the person who owns this belt will be bound and taken by the Jewish leaders into captivity 
And the people begin to weep. And they say, please don't do this. Please don't go. And the poor apostle is heartbroken. And at the end, uh, in chapter 21, verse 13, Paul says to them, what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So when he would not be persuaded, we ceased saying, the will of the Lord be done. I want to just, I want to just lay a statement out in front of you to, to think about, to consider, to place first in your mind. That your circumstances and your location do not affect the reality of your call. Your circumstances and your location do not affect the reality of your call. Remember this guy. Remember who he was. Remember that he started life as a... Well, he starts his life for us. He starts in... We are introduced to him. Let's put it that way. He, we're introduced to him as this persecutor of the congregation of God. This persecutor of Jesus. He believes. He has so much information. He is aware that the children of Israel are the children of God. He is so certain that this is the right group, that they're doing the right thing. He's joined the group of the Pharisees, the most conservative lot within all of Israel. And as a, as a follower, a keeper of the rules of the Pharisees, he's trying really hard to align himself with every single rule in the text. And as he's trying really hard to perform appropriately the rules of the text, he has a great deal of conviction. He has a great deal of heart information. He has a great deal of head knowledge, but he has not yet had a converted heart. He's not yet met Jesus. He's not yet given himself over to Christ. It's interesting, someone approached me this morning just as we were getting ready to go, go live, and we had a simple conversation that was about this very subject. It was about the concept that a person's heart must be changed. Remember, the exchange in the Bible is not an exchange of knowledge. You're not saved by what you know. Gaining more knowledge isn't bad. Knowledge of God increases your faith in God. But gaining knowledge is not what saves you. Information is not what saves you. Transformation is what saves you. The Bible says that God takes the heart of stone, hardened and unbeaten, unbeating, just sitting there, a rock inside of you, unmoved by the things of God, untouched by the things of God, without, not driven by the purposes of God, not clear in his understanding of how to follow God. It takes that rock-hard heart and it replaces it with a heart of flesh that moves to the rhythms that God alone provides. You know, when Adam came to life, Adam laid there on the ground. He was a fully formed man. Everything in him was present. Everything that was needed biologically was there. Everything that was needed systematically was there. Everything that was needed chemically was there. But there was no spark of life until God breathed into him the breath of light. And that breath of life has beaten the chest of every human being from then to now. But when conversion takes place, there's a heart surgery done. And the Apostle tells the story again 
and again and again in the book of Acts. He tells the story probably many, many more times. I wouldn't doubt that at every church where he plants a church, he tells the story of his own conversion. Why not? Why not start with your own testimony? This is my experience with Jesus. We lead with knowledge far too often. We are called to lead with the purposes of God. We are called to lead with the transformational authority and power of God. Paul tells the story of being on the Damascus Road. Prior to this moment, he is persecuting the people of God. He is persecuting the Messiah's followers. He doesn't know it. He doesn't understand that that's what's happened. He doesn't understand that there's been a change in the religious priorities of God and that he's moved away from temple worship and he's moved away from lambs being sacrificed. He's moved away from the symbols of the crucifixion and he's moved to the reality of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus and he's riding down the road to take those people who believe that out. Remember the story. On his way to Damascus, just before he enters the city, he is knocked to the ground by the bright light of God's presence. And the Lord himself, Jesus himself, speaks to him. And Paul never can unhear the words, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Because to persecute the people of God is to persecute God himself. To persecute the people of God is personal to God. Because the people of God are an extension of Him. These are not just humans populating the planet. These are His children. And to mess with His children is to mess with Him. Why, Paul, why, Saul, are you persecuting me? Saul doesn't even know who he's talking to. Remember his answer? His answer is, who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Saul's life will never be the same. Those words will echo in the chambers of his mind all of his life. Saul, you're persecuting me. I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. He becomes blind. Ananias finds him on a road called Straight. Heals his blindness. Calls him his brother. Baptizes him and introduces him to the family of God. That's the transformational moment of Paul's life. From that day forward, the purposes of his existence change. Jesus will tell him in that short period of time, I am calling you to be my messenger to the Gentiles. He's taking a Pharisee of Pharisees and making him a preacher to the Gentiles. Only God can do that. He's taking a person who's completely focused on trying to live the best Jewish life he can to avoid any filth, to avoid contact with, Jew, with Gentiles, to avoid contact with anything unclean, to stay pure, to keep himself totally and completely to himself. He's taking that man and he's saying, you will be my messenger to the hoi polloi, the, the Gentiles, the, the goyim, the people whom you don't like, the people whom you don't trust, the people whom you believe are unclean. You will be my messenger to them because that's what I do. I transform things. And he takes the zeal in the heart of this man and he sets it in motion towards the purposes of God. I don't know what your heart's like right now. Some of, some of you have been just all of your life zealous for the things of God. But, but I ask you, have you been zealous for God? 
Have you been zealous for the transformation of your life? Are you, are you zealous for conversion? Are you looking for a way for that heart that is stony and difficult and hard to be changed? Is that what's happening to you? As a Seventh-day Adventist, it's easy for us to think about the rules and get involved with the rules and regulations. It's easy to think about what you eat and what, when you go to church and have you got all your, your denominational understandings correct and your doctrinal things, all, all your doctrinal things pinpointed. But you can have all of that right. You can be, Paul was right. He was right. His knowledge of God was accurate. But he didn't know God. And the purposes of God are built on a knowledge of God that's a relational thing. The infilling of the Holy Spirit, which places God in your heart. The transformation of that stone into flesh. It changes you. And it takes the alignment of that zeal, the things you are zealous for, and it aims them at the purposes of God. It takes the things that you are passionate about and it aims them at the purposes of God. It takes the things that you do and the skills you have and the talents and the abilities and the experiences and it aims them at the purposes of God. You see, you are this conglomerate of many things. Saul was a Greek or or was a, a, a Roman citizen born to a mixed family, one of whom was a Gentile, one of whom was a Jewess. He was Jew and Gentile in one package. Probably why he became so zealous for Judaism is that he had to overcome his history. A lot of people, a lot of us, are trying to find ways to overcome our history. We overcompensate for our our family. We overcompensate for the lacks of our childhood. We overcompensate for our personal behaviors in the past. We overcompensate, we overcompensate. And I think Paul's decision to be a Pharisee may have been an overcompensation for his father because he had that non-Jewish father. So here we are, and we're entering the final phase of life. The final phase of ministry, the final phase of choice, And he's been told by God, you're going to go to Jerusalem. When you're there, you're going to suffer and you're going to die. And it's interesting because God doesn't just end it there. He tells Paul, you're going to go to Jerusalem. You're going to preach for me in Jerusalem, but you're also going to preach for me in Rome. Not just Jerusalem, but also Rome. See, Paul knows that his ultimate destination isn't just Jerusalem. The call of God on Paul's life is taking him not just in this one space to Jerusalem, but to Rome. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. The Bible, when speaking to the, when Jesus, when speaking to the disciples, last, one of the last things he says to them, he says, You will be my disciples. When the Holy Spirit comes on you, you will be my disciples and you will speak for me in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Jerusalem, Judea, those are places of comfort. Samaria, oh no, we're going to talk to the Samaritans. And to the ends of the earth. The Apostle Paul is about to take this thing to the ends of the earth. He's about to take it from the capital of Judaism in Jerusalem to the capital of paganism in Rome. 
He's about to take it from the, the capital of God worship in Jerusalem to the capital of multiple God pantheism in Rome. He's about to go from mile marker 2045 on the Roman highway to mile marker 1. He's about to go to the center of the Roman Empire at a time when it is at its pinnacle, at a time when its emperors are running the world, are managing this vast empire across North Africa, the Middle East, all the way to England, this massive and intense empire. As he is moving through that, as he is about to head in that direction, he goes not on his own will, he goes at the behest of someone else. He rolls into Jerusalem on a feast day. He's there just to reconnect, it looks like. He's there just a couple of weeks. And he's grabbed by the local authorities, some people who know who he is from out in Asia. They tell the local authorities, this is the guy who's been disturbing the Jews all over the world. Grab him. And the people gather. The, the gates get closed. They, they rush in and try to, try to kill him. And it is only the Roman guards who rescue him. It's interesting that the will of God and the call on his men is protected by the, by the secular government of the Romans. The Roman guards gather him up. They literally have to carry him out of the crowd to keep the car- crowd from beating him to death. And Paul gives us a clue about his whole life's center in this moment. He's asked to speak. He's, told, he's given an opportunity to speak to, the, to his accusers. He's standing there before the Sanhedrin. And as he's standing there before the Sanhedrin, he recognizes these people. He knows these people. He realizes there are Pharisees and there are Sadducees present. There are both sides of the theological argument in Judaism are there. He knows that this is a, there's a theological divide in, in Israel. And in that theological divide, the one side believes in the resurrection, believes in angels, believes in heaven. The other side's almost completely secular. doesn't believe in any of that stuff. It's a religion without a God. It's It's a religion without angels. It's a religion without resurrection. It's a religion without a heaven. What kind of people believe in a God that has, and none of that is true. But that's who the Sadducees are. Paul, seeing that they're both there, gives us the central figure of his life, the central changing in his understanding. He says, I stand here accused because of my belief in the resurrection. And it looks like he's only doing that to start a fight. But it's bigger than that. Because he's hauled in front of Felix. He gets taken down to Caesarea Marineris. He's taken out of Jerusalem for his own protection. Down to the magistrate, to the governor of the region in Caesarea Marineris. And he's brought to Felix. Felix has a Jewish wife. Felix knows about Israel. He's been there for a while. He knows about the issues that are going on. And Paul arrives at his, at his court. And when Paul is judged in that court, when, when his accusers come to him in that court, he again says, Felix, I am not being judged today because of the things they're describing. None of that is true. I am before you today because of my belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Felix tries to sort it out, gets nowhere. Brings back his Jewish wife. They listen to Paul again. And for two years, he lives there in Herod's palace. Some of you have traveled to Israel and you've seen the remains of that palace that goes out into the bay, into the Mediterranean, a spectacular place. He lives in that place under sort of watch, under uh, the guardianship of the centurions who who are billeted there as well. He has freedom to move and interact with people, but he has to stay in that place, in that building. 
two years he's there under Felix's watch. And then Felix <coughs> moves. He's replaced, as government people are, government officials are. In the Roman Empire, it was the same. He moves after a couple of years. Two years of incarceration, lots of conversations, no movement of the heart. Then a new, king, a, new, a new magistrate comes, a guy named Festus. He walks in. He comes into the same situation. He finds this guy there imprisoned in his house. The Jews are saying, we need to get rid of this guy. You need to kill this guy. We need to be done with this guy. It's been two years now. We've waited long enough. Festus goes and he asks Paul. He tries to sort out what's going on with him as well. Asks him if he was willing to go up to Jerusalem in order to be judged. He thinks to go up there will be a favor to the Jews. Everything will be honky-dory. Saul says, I'm not going to Jerusalem. He says, I choose to have my case heard by the emperor. Because it was the right of a Roman citizen to have his case heard by the emperor. Saul says, I want to go see the emperor. Take me to Rome. I want you to understand, this is a passage that bothered me for the longest time because we'll find out that they're, that they're thinking about letting him go, but Paul's appealing to Caesar, and since he's appealing to Caesar, he has to get his appeal taken to Rome. And I, I, I've read the text, and I said, man, Paul, what are you thinking, man? You were almost out. But Paul's not trying to get out of this. He's trying to get into Rome. Because he knows the call of God, the purposes of God, the direction of his ministry is Rome. God has already told him that he will speak before the leaders in Rome. He sees this as his ticket, his passage to Rome. Two years trying to convince the king to, or the magistrates. Nothing. Now, Festus has a visitor. King Agrippa shows up. He's going to have a conversation and a visit with this new governor. He arrives. He's there with his sister, who also seems to be his wife. His, her other sister was actually Felix's wife. It's kind of a very close-knit group. He comes in to visit the new governor, and the, and the, the, the description of, of Luke is the description of someone who was present. He says they come into the office chambers, the, the, the judgment chambers, and... Agrippa comes in with great pomp. And he settles in to hear Paul. And he says, you can speak freely. Paul begins to speak. The accusations that have been placed before you about me have nothing to do with the truth. It's not the issue here. That's not what's going on. And he says, Agrippa, I am here because of my belief a belief that is held by all of Judaism, a belief that week after week, day after day, they are seeking after. For generations, for thousands of years, they've been seeking this same thing. For thousand years, they've been waiting for the coming of the Messiah. They've been waiting for God to bring the power of resurrection on the planet. They've been waiting for God to do the miraculous thing. All of us saw that this, this, this system that we live with, this killing of lambs was a, a symbolic representation of something God would do. Paul says, I am here on trial because I believe that that has happened. I am here on trial because of my belief in the resurrection, I am here on trial because God has called me to tell you and to tell everyone else about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why I'm here. He says to Agrippa, you, uh, you certainly 
No, it's not unreasonable to believe in the resurrection. He begins to move on Agrippa's heart. Finally, after talking to him for a few minutes, he says, Agrippa, you believe in the prophets. Felix had said, you almost convinced me, Paul. Agrippa would say, do you think you can convince me this quickly? And Paul has now brought the message of Jesus before the leadership of the Roman government. The last time a Roman governor had been spoken to on behalf of Jesus, it was in fact Jesus himself who spoke. And now his messenger, this converted Pharisee, this man who had spent his early life trying to end the Christian church, this man, this man, this guy who believed knowledge could save him, this man, This guy who had to be knocked down and blinded by God in order for God to get his attention. This man becomes the voice of God to the magistrates and king in Israel. Shipped off to Rome. Literally. Shipwreck on the way. Lots of miraculous and wonderful things to be talked about and preached about at some other point. He arrives in Rome and finds himself in the same situation. Under house arrest, he rents a small house. A centurion comes every day and spends the day with him. Every night, he's chained to them. He is there all day, all night, all day, all night. There's one of the guards, one of the centurions, one of the praetorian guards, who are the guards of the king, the emperors. And he begins to tell them about Jesus until he has planted the seeds of Christianity in leadership spaces in the empire. That these highest, these men who are of highest regard are getting the message of Jesus and the resurrection. By this man that they can't leave, they're on a shift, 12 hours a day, they're chained to this guy. And then 12 hours, someone else. And then 12 hours, someone else. And then 12 hours, someone else. And slowly, they all rotate through the pulpit of Paul. You see, because the circumstances and the location don't change the call. Call is is something that stays with the person called. As he moves through all of these things, from the community to one community to another, from from Judaism and the synagogues to the, to the roadsides and the riversides to Athens itself, and now to the Praetorian Guard's placement in his house. This little rented house becomes a church. And Paul begins to preach. The, the Greek word is euangelion. It's the word we take evangelism from. We have made evangelism this little weird squared off piece of this thing. It's no. Evangelism is simply telling the story of Jesus that has affected you. That's all it is. It's telling the next person that you're in contact with who's open or who's stuck what you have experienced with Jesus. And for years he talks. Two more years he's on house arrest and he's talking and he's talking and he's talking. We don't know the direct lineage of Paul's Paul's conversions. We don't know the direct lineage of the influence of the people that he talked to. We know that many of these people are from the Germanic tribes. Many of these people are Germans brought in from the field because they're such tough soldiers. And when when you gain their loyalty, they're extremely loyal. Some of these people will take it back to Germany. 
Some of these people return to homes in Gaul. Some of these people will go off to the Mediterranean. Some of these people from this guard, when they retire, will be taken off into various parts of the empire, and they will take their knowledge of Jesus, and some of them will take a changed heart. Two and a half centuries later, two and a half centuries after this, the mother of the emperor Constantine is a Christian. And Constantine himself will convert. Because the call of Paul was that he would preach to the Gentiles. But not just the average person. That once he had honed his message, once he had traveled the world, once he was ready, God would place him before governors and kings. The last magistrate Paul stands before is Nero himself. Two years in that house and apparently then released for a while. In July of 64 AD, Rome begins to burn. And as the fire moves through the districts of Rome, tearing one down and then another and then another, two of the districts that are untouched And there are only five. Two of those districts that are untouched are inhabited mostly by Christians. We would say, praise God, He protected the believers from the conflagration. He did. But the people believed Nero had set the fire. That he was just crazy enough to do something like that. Historians are still struggling with that 2,000 years later. Did he do it? Did he not do it? Did he do it? Did he not do it? There are arguments on both sides. But politically, Nero had to do something about this. And so Nero decided to blame the Christians. He said, look, their districts didn't burn. They did it. And so he starts to round up believers. He starts to round them up, take them into the forums, and have them killed in the most merciless ways. It's in this roundup that the Apostle Peter gets crucified. Nero would in one of his grand sweeps of of motions, he would at one point crucify massive numbers of Christians alongside the roads in Rome. When that happens to Peter, Peter's answer to the one who would crucify him was, please, please would you crucify me upside down? Because I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy of being crucified in the manner that Jesus was. You see, the call for Peter was to go from this loud, strong voice to the humble representative of Christ. And that humility and that leadership and that voice went with them because the call, the call isn't dependent upon circumstance or place. And so to his last breath, he did everything he could to humbly represent Jesus, not Peter. The Apostle Paul was swept up in this gathering of Christians. He has his last opportunity to plead before Nero because he's a Roman citizen. We're not told what he did, but why would he, why would he venture off from what he always does? It's almost certain that he told 
Nero about the Damascus Road. And then he told Nero about his hope in the resurrection. And then he was taken away by some of those same guards. And he was beheaded. And Paul's life ends with this final move of a Roman emperor. But Paul's message carries on. The call was bigger than even Paul knew. He knew that God was sending him to the Gentiles and that God was sending him to the outer edges of the world and that God was sending him to speak to Roman leaders. He understood that this purpose, this direction of his life, was the guiding factor, and he could go wherever God called him because under this kind of, of driven, gripped, seized, Holy Spirit-controlled living, he could do no other. Because over the early years of his conversion, he surrendered and surrendered and surrendered and surrendered until all he had left was his desire to follow Jesus. And when Jesus said, Saul, Paul, I want you to go to Jerusalem and speak for me there. And I will have you speak between gov before governors and magistrates, and then I want you to go to Rome. And I want you to speak to the leadership there as well. Saul knew that that meant death. But he also knew that death was not final because he knew Jesus. You see, when you face death, the testimonial peace that means the most to you, I stand before you today, Felix, because of my belief in the resurrection. I stand before you today, Agrippa, because of my belief in the resurrection. Listen to the word stand. He's not quaking. He's not shaking. He's not falling on his knees and begging for mercy. He stands before Felix. He stands before Festus. He stands before Agrippa. He ultimately stands before Nero. Why can he stand there giving this direct comment, this direct hope, this direct defense? Because he knows who he serves. He knows that there's a resurrection. He knows that he has read the whole story before. And he knows the end of the story. He's seen it in the text. He knows that there's a promised resurrection for the people who follow after Jesus. And so he's not afraid to die. He can stand in front of these people and say, I am here because of my belief in the resurrection. And he can hear himself say, I stand before you right now. I don't quaver before you right now. I don't beg before you right now. I stand here because I believe in the resurrection. His call was to try to convince everyone else he could that they could stand like that. If we have learned nothing from this man, we have to understand that the call that he felt on his life 
passionately went from place to place to place to place. Wherever he was, the call traveled with him. Because the call isn't dependent on your circumstance. Isn't dependent on your location. The call on your life is only related to the beating of your heart in time with that of God. With the beating of your heart, so long as it beats, there's a call. And with every beat, there's a call. And with every breath, there's a call. There's a call. There's a call. Some of you are watching this today and maybe you're convinced about God, but you're not converted yet. Maybe you're with Paul at the beginning. You believe the information, but you're not really certain about that transformative life. You're not certain about the surrender that's necessary. You're not certain about whether or not you would, you would really be one of those people, that you're really interested in being one of those people. I tell you, you're missing out if you haven't surrendered to Jesus. Because the real valuable purposes of life, the, the life that has meaning, the life that gets you up in the morning and excites you at the end of the day, the life that gives you something to wake up and pray about it to, the life that gives you a focus about your step, the life that allows you to understand that no circumstantial change can affect it is on the other side of conversion and the other side of surrender to Jesus, on the other, other side of saying, I know that I am a broken, horrible, lost man. And for some reason you want me to be your son. I'm in. If that's you, would you just say that? Would you just say to God in the privacy of your home or your office or your living room, wherever you are, wherever you're watching this, whenever you're watching this, would you just take a minute? Would you just take a half hour? Would you just take whatever you need to take and come to God in recognition of your need of a Savior and surrender your life to Him and choose repentance? Repentance means I choose the path that Jesus is leading on. And I choose to get off of the path where I'm in charge. It'll take some time. You, like Paul, will have things you have to surrender in the process. But the goal is to just simply follow Jesus because He's headed home. And if you will follow, He will watch and care for and bless you all the way along the road. And He will give you a calling fit to who you are. Fit to your personality. Fit to your talents. Fit to your abilities. Fit to your experiences. Those things will make the life after you've surrendered to Jesus spectacular. Our story ends with Paul being separated from his head. But Paul's story doesn't end there. Because the resurrection is sure. 
Would you pray with me? Father God, it is consistently true that we struggle with the surrender that allows us to follow you all the way home. Today there are some people I think who are choosing that. I believe there are people watching this who are choosing to follow you home today. You're choosing to repent, choosing to get off the path of their own devising and get onto the path of Jesus. Lord, I pray that they will yoke themselves together with you today because the light, the, the road, the walk, the load, the burden will be much lighter if they do. Lord, I pray that they'll understand the outpouring of your blood and the cleansing authority of your sacrifice. And I pray that every one of us will recognize that you're slipping a ring on our finger and that you know that we will write checks that we can't cover after this. You know that we will do things where the blood will have to be applied. You know what the future holds for us and you know we are broken, messed up people and there will be a lot of wandering on this path that we've chosen. But you can cover any check we write. Lord, I pray that deep in the heart of each one of us will be a recognition of the assurance of the resurrection. Because in the resurrection, death loses its sting. In the cleansing of the blood of Christ, sin loses its authority. And Lord, we look forward to the day when it loses its influence. We choose you. We choose your purpose for our life and your call on us. In Jesus' name.